Throughout the years, Fannie Mae has developed candies that often become the center of many family and holiday traditions. Beginning with only a handful of confections, today Fannie Mae makes over a hundred different confections and continues to develop new and innovative flavor profiles for our customers. Quality has always been the driving force behind the making of Fannie Mae chocolates in the 2008 financial crisis. Okay, because the first thing I think of when I think of Fannie Mae is not financial crisis, but uh, romantic sweets and treats. Okay, <laughs> Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae. If you just gave it to me on a, just uh, just without any kind of context in, in previously, it almost sounds like a company that's like one of those sort of cute little companies that mm -hmm. is um, trying trying to sell erotica or like sex toys, but mm -hmm. they have like a fun a fun name like in portland there was a company called chibop and their big thing was just selling like vibrators that cost 150 dollars mm. fanny may sounds like this is a place where um you can find something to stick in your holes you know what i mean Ooh, also yeah. fanny may sounds uh slight it, it sounds pretty innocent in the united states but if we were in the uk that would be a downright pornographic name Vagina May. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wait, Fanny's? Yes. Fanny means butt. No, it means vagina. What? Yeah. That's right. That's why it's uh they they snicker at you when you head over to to Bath or Kensington and you say uh, I got my fanny pack on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you got your you got your <laughs> vagina pack on. Yeah, you can't yeah. go to Liverpool or Manchester and mm -hmm. talk about your uh, fanny pack. I'll just yeah, call go, if you go to if you go to fucking Suffolk or Norfolk or F Edinburgh, uh, well, did the Scottish also? I'm sure the Scottish probably they play along just as much. But uh, I'll just call it my snack. Yeah. I'll just call it my snatch pack. Ew, I don't like that at <laughs> all. <laughs> Gross. Well, they won't call too they won't rude. Like <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, it it, it, it makes sense. I mean, fan, I mean, it's it sits on right above sort of like kind of like groin crotchal area it's a mm -hmm. it's a fucking it's a fucking fanny you know it's, mm -hmm. it's a vagina pack yeah yeah it means pussy pack that's what it means it means Ew. or fupa I actually like... i think fanny actually is uh an acronym for fupa yeah fat upper pussy area yeah it's, <laughs> uh, it's the fupa the... it's actually the it's 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 uh a f it's an acronym of fanny the fupa of fanny. it's what? It's a portmanteau. That's where. F Never mind. All right. Um, uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to bleep out a couple parts of that just to confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back on the rails, boys. <laughs> yeah, pretty fun. I caught this while I was doing the thing that everybody who's normal does, which is uh, going on Twitter, but not scrolling through it, only looking at Twitter mentions uh, or Twitter news or whatever it's moments. And I saw that uh, Michael Alvinati actually got released from prison prematurely. Uh, he's still convicted, uh, but he's just not being held in a federal prison. Italian anymore. lives matter. Italian lives matter. That's I. Yeah, actually, I didn't even. It, it just even didn't even occur to me until just now that he. I, that, oh yeah, he must be Italian. That's a hella Italian mm -hmm. last name mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. But the weird, the weird take on it that. Uh, kind of took me for a loop 
was this thing that uh, a couple kind of sort of, um, I, I don't know what you would call them, just sort of like hot take Twitter accounts. They were like, uh, I can't believe we're letting out Michael Avenatti. They are letting R. Kelly and Bill Cosby rot in jail. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> Which was, I was like, all right, okay. Well, let's uh, let's cool the let's cool the brakes on that a little bit. Uh, cool the jets, so to speak. They're right. Uh, Michael Avenatti should be uh, like rotting in a jail cell, waiting for trial, just the same way like some guy who like sold a cigarette on the side of the streets of New York did, you know. Um, but like. That's just how. That's just finance and jail, baby. They don't. They'll let. They'll let you fucking go out of jail in a in a heartbeat if you, you know, did insider insider trading. But they do not. They do not uh, play well with any kind of violent crime. I don't think. Anyone, uh, Danny, you want to talk about what? Um, what did what did what did Michael Avenatti do? Michael Avenatti. Well, I mean, Michael Avenatti. He tried to blackmail uh, one of the biggest companies in the entire world, uh, Nike, um, if I'm not mistaken, right? Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah, he tried He tried to... What was the exact story again? He tried to He tried to blackmail Nike because of... Uh, he tried I to... I can't remember the... He didn't quite try to blackmail them. He tried to extort them, which is... This extort, extortion. Yeah, 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 yeah. He wanted to... Nike to pay his client $1.5 million and to give him and his co-conspirator 15 to 25 million to conduct an internal investigation for the company. Um, yeah. Yeah. A quote unquote internal investigation. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we've, we've talked about it in the past for sure. I knew it had to do with Nike. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it is blackmail. I guess it is, man. It's it's like he threatened to hold a news conference to ruin the sportswear giant's reputation unless the company agreed to pay him millions of dollars. That sounds like blackmail to me. <laughs> it's blackmail, but it's also just stupid because like what it what do you mean ruin their reputation? Like they have slave labor. In, in like Asian countries, it's like it's one of those things where like every once in a while, Nike and Adidas and all those shitty companies, they they have to put out a press release that's like, oh, we were not aware that the conditions in our factories in Cambodia were slave like <laughs> or indentured servitude. Whoopsie, indentured servitudes did it again. Sorry, you guys. So like, what you think you're gonna blackmail them? Like, go fuck yourself. Basically. His client was a youth basketball coach who had information that Nike employees made illicit payments to the families of high school athletes. That's oh, not, nice. I mean, that's cool. <laughs> that, that's cool <laughs> as hell. That's really cool. <laughs> I love that. It, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Paying them for what? Like supporting their career? Sure. I mean, I'm a huge fan of paying uh, student athletes because they are being exploited. So why not give them a little extra cash to walk around with? Yeah, that's so. Wait, so that this is like this is like the coolest thing Nike has allegedly ever done. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's pretty sweet, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the ethics are uh, around that. You know, I just I I just think that sports are uh, messed up in how that they they don't they don't pay their athletes enough. I mean, when uh, you get to yeah. the top, sure, but. Uh, but there's that whole time when you are having a you get a scholarship to go to college based on your athletic prowess. But if yeah. you uh, get injured, 
you know, there goes your scholarship. So everything's based on that that little bit of talent and luck that you have. And then during that whole time, you're not allowed to take bribes mm-hmm. from companies. Yeah. And you should de- or sponsorships. Yeah. Absolutely. You get paid. Yeah. We're actually, and I think this sort of wraps a little bit around to COVID a little bit, where we are, it is sort of by luck of the draw, so to speak, that uh, the coronavirus came up in the spring part of 2020. Mm. And, you know, because of that, all basketball was sort of uh, put on indefinite indefinite holds. You know, there, there likely won't be a basketball season uh, that was probably the biggest signifier of coronavirus when the NBA was just like, no more games, we're canceling all of them, that's too many people in one place. Uh, the real test is kind of what Gabe was talking about, was it will be in the fall when football season comes around. Because as we all know, the NBA is the only woke uh, sports league in the country. Mm-hmm. And Robert Roger Goodell of the NFL is not so there will absolutely be some spicy spicy hot takes if corona is still around and uh ruining things around then i think it's going to um (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah it it will it will will, i'll put my money on it still being here for sure and i think roger goodell is going to be uh he's going to do the right thing and he's going to rename the washington football team the the washington covid's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be a market step up. Uh, Gabe didn't laugh at that joke because you're from DC and that's an offensive joke to you. Oh, uh, well, I just don't pay any attention to sports, so I didn't know who Roger Goodell was at first. But now that I get it, it- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Roger, Roger, I'm Goodell. right there. I'm with Dude, you, Roger. Actually, <laughs> I mean, real, real talk. Adam Smith, the NBA commissioner. Um, you know, he's he's the commissioner of a gigantic sports league. So like I'm not gonna say he is without sin, but he I th- I think he did one of the the cooler things early on in the coronavirus outbreak where he he was like I'm furloughing either a large part of my salary or or like some of the executive salaries and sort of passing it along, uh, which is fucking cool, man. That's like you know that's really neat. Adam Silver. Adam Silver, that is what I meant to say, and who the current commissioner of the NBA is, not Adam Smith. That was a different guy. That's nice. Well, sounds like Michael Avenatti uh, did not do any of that stuff, and um, and he still got out, of, <laughs> <laughs> and he still got out of jail for it. He got it. He he posted a one million dollar bond, um, and now he's and now he's a free man. Um, but well, you know what? Uh, this this uh, last week, uh, Amber and I in my in my apartment, we had a fundraiser uh, via Skype or a, re- a Zoom. We did a Zoom fundraiser for COVID bailout NYC, yeah. and we raised thirty eight thousand yeah. dollars to get uh, people what? out of jail uh, right now in NYC. You guys because, raised thirty eight thousand dollars. Well, not all by ourselves, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Over wow. the course of this weekend, uh, COVID bailout NYC raised uh, thirty thousand uh, dollars. Oh, okay, okay. I was gonna say, like, Gabe, if you individually raised thirty eight thousand dollars, that's who? Yeah. Who do you know? That and I, show. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I uh, misquoted. I said the wrong number, so thirty thousand. But it was uh, through. COVID NYC bailout, which is still a great cause for people to give money to. Yes. Because it's just it. people, you know, 
you know, like we were talking about Avenatti being able to post a million dollars to get out, but most people who are in jail because of a Lucy cigarette or like a parole violation on some bullshit charge over $20 worth of weed, mm-hmm. those yeah. people, um, or, you know, this is pre-trial, so they, they have to fill the jails up. They love having them full. Cops have quotas, and um, people are just uh, wallowing away in this giant Petri dish where COVID-19 is festering. Mm-hmm. And I think New York City's mm-hmm. jail is the highest uh, percentage of um, uh, COVID-19 cases in the in the world, maybe? Wow. You I know? mean, it's, it, it's very likely. Wow. This actually dovetails into something that I, I... Okay, it's a bit of a hot take. Okay. And I don't oh. want to offend any I don't want to offend anybody. Uh-oh. We've all heard about how the prisoners of uh Rikers have been offered $6 an hour to dig mass graves, uh-huh. right? Okay, here's what I'm going to be posing to you guys. 550 550 550. Independent independent of any kind of natural disaster pandemic anything else like that are you pro or against the idea of a lot of people buried in one hole what do you think <laughs> what do you think i'm not gonna call, i'm not gonna call it i'm not gonna call it a mass grave mass grave is too that's too loaded that's too loaded of a word that's too loaded of a word we don't want to say mass grave that that sort of harkens back to like not fun times in history but yeah. like just just from like an environmental purpose because I was thinking about I was thinking about it and uh-huh. I was thinking like yo if I'm dead and I'm just sort of like in the ground raw dogging it with like 80 other people just Word. right next to me you Word. know like <laughs> Dude. like finally get to look, do that yeah, orgy. Yo, yo, when, it, <laughs> yeah. when I die when I die I'd like you to throw me into a giant cuddle puddle yeah 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 <laughs> I I I, th- I think it's I think it's worth thinking about because apparently the way they're doing the mass graves on Heart Island is they would put they'd still put people in caskets and they'd line them up like head to toe head to yeah, toe yeah when I die when I die I want to be sixty nine and baby that's how I want my body <laughs> when yeah, I die yeah. when I die uh, break two of my ribs so I can suck my own dick finally all right. <laughs> <laughs> I want archaeologists <laughs> to discover me in 300,000 years and have it be like that Mount Vesuvius guy yeah. who was Dude. beating off. I want them to be like, like how long epic. was that human centipede? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this must have been a, a, a ritual of the, the New York the New Yorkers, I guess. This must have been a, a regular thing. I guess this must have happened. That's, that's our inference. It must have been a religious ritual. I, I just think, uh, look, I just think mass graves have been really sort of, it's a bad PR thing to have a mass grave these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, environment, I mean, like, look, look, man, you, you get right down to it uh, environmentally, uh, energy efficiency. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, so here's, con- go I got on, it. Man. I got it, uh, Danny. Here, here it is. You know how, like, when you get a driver's license, you got to, you got to uh, check the box that says, I'm an organ donor. You uh-huh. can check yeah, the box yeah. to say that you also want to conserve space. And yeah. if you check the mm-hmm. conserve space box, then uh then they can put you in a in a <laughs> in a collective <laughs> a yeah. communal grave. Yeah, it it's like it's like we work but for graves. Dude, they did they buried my granddad in a cardboard box. Hey, really? What? 
No, like, it, it, dude, it's the weirdest thing. Who's My they? Granddad, Who's they? The, the yeah, that's what makes it. Dude, it's, it's really, was it Pol it's really Pot? weird. Like, was it? Like, dude, my granddad, he, he like, did not live. It's, he wasn't rich, rich, but he was definitely, like, comfortable. He was probably, like, one of those guys who, like, probably had six figures in the bank just, con- just like, comfortably all the time. Nice. And he, like, drove, drove a Cadillac in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, nice. for all, most of his life. But when he died, he 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 chose and elected for like a no frills funeral. Oh, they said, cool. "Put me in a put me in a put me in a box, put me in a cardboard box, and bury me." And I was nice. like, "Hell yeah, dude! I would love to be buried <laughs> in a cardboard box. You let the you let the worms get you. You get to go be part of the earth. That's very it's it's beautiful. You know what I would like if I ever get sentenced to death? I want I want to be guillotined because Ooh. don't you think of, because like. I don't know. First off, it's flashy, you know, and I, you know, I like the pomp and circumstance of it. Yeah. Um, swag, sec- swag. It's swag. Swag. Yeah. And second off, it's clean, happens real quick, and you get like 15 seconds of your head being separated from your body. It's like a K-hole. You know what I mean? Like you're in a totally different, you're like, you have this like mind-body separation thing that's fucking cool. Um, and third, it's like, ret- you know, it's like retro, super hipster. To get guillotined, it's like it's a very bespoke uh, execution method. So bespoke, so bespoke. No, no, no. This is what it is, uh, David. This is like when you go to a McDonald's and you ask for fries that have no salt on them, because you know if they're unsalted, they have to make the fries fresh. So you know that if they use the guillotine. They have to like shine up the guillotine and make it like <laughs> make it all like all nice and everything, you know. Yeah, maybe they'll use it for someone else after me, you know. Yeah, one can only hope. <laughs> oh man, dreams, dreams, and memories. Okay, what else are we talking about today, guys? What else is on the um? What's all? Uh, we have a cu- We were gonna talk about the regulations, right? We we're gonna talk about the agencies. Um, I guess. I've been doing some reporting uh, with my day job um, about the SEC in particular and how it's been responding to coronavirus. Um, And one thing that would be interesting to look at is this. Before we go into the SEC, let's look at this article from Bloomberg. Um, Basically, there is some accusations from some people. I mean, that agencies have been shutting down. That's not an accusation. Agencies have all been. Um, yeah. On a skeleton crew, everyone is operating, you know, with social distancing. You know, there's no um, takeout options available in these agencies or takeout only. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's take, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Takeout only. You know, um, but you can you can take cocktails with you. You know, out of the FTC, so that's nice. But like they, so they, there have been some accusations that they've been using this kind of partial shutdown of the. Uh, executive branch essentially to unwind permanently other rules um, that are like political priorities. So this is kind of in its own way, its own form of grift of the like taking advantage of the chaos that is coronavirus and exploiting it sure. for political purposes. Right. So this uh, Bloomberg article talks about how the EPA um, has been not punishing companies that don't monitor their pollution levels 
during the pandemic. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> In- yeah, they don't do shit. Yeah. yeah, they don't do shit any anyways. And now it's like they're not even sending they're not even sending somebody to the, you know, the fucking dick sucking factory to make sure all the dick sucking <laughs> regulations are being followed. You know, they're just sort of like, no, 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 no. And the example you just gave is the dick sucking factory, the agency or the company that's being regulated. <laughs> The company that's being regulated. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. All right. Okay, okay. Look, I don't want. Well, I don't want to exist in the world that like, uh, uh, you know, Aldous Huxley's The Jungle existed, where people got their arms threshed off in a dick sucking machine. Mm. Okay, like. <laughs> yeah, get OSHA up in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so another type of thing happened in um, in Georgia. Um, basically, a company um that sterilizes medical supplies. Last year, voluntarily shut its plant in Georgia to install pollution controls amid public concerns over fugitive emissions of ethylene oxide, a chemical that's been identified by the EPA as a carcinogen causing cancer. The company planned to reopen the plant, uh, but the county refused to let it resume operations pending a review of the permitting process and fire production standards. FDA Stephen Hahn, uh, Commissioner Stephen Hahn, wrote a letter urging him to um, help protect against COVID-19 by working with the company to allow for the appropriate sterilization of PPE. He says, we need more PPE supplies. You got to reopen this regardless of whether it's going to emit carcinogens. Yeah, so he's like, this is the, the cancer factory and you, that also makes PPEs, <laughs> and you need to open up the cancer PPE factory because we need more PPE. And this isn't even a temporary thing. We just need to have, it's not... This is just, we're going to roll these things back, all of our EPA protections, indefinitely. Yes. On April 8th, which is uh, last week, a federal judge issued an order with uh, with the consent of the county and the company, which is called Sterogenics, allowing the company to use ethylene oxide until it issues a final judgment on the underlying lawsuits that Sterogenics brought against the county for keeping its plant closed on manufacture, quote, manufacturing a sham claim about violating protection codes. Basically, they are allowing it for, to happen temporarily until the lawsuit gets resumed. So, in effect, they're kind of letting the company go free until the lawsuit gets resolved. Yeah, I feel like what they're, what it is, they, there's two things that I saw from or heard from that. One is the sort of like, break shit now, apologize later. Uh, like, they're just going to try to keep doing this stuff. And then I'm sure probably in like, five six seven years there'll be some sort of thing where they solve it and they're like oh yeah you broke a rule um pay three million dollars yeah and that'll be you know a thousand people got cancer and etc etc and then the second thing was my favorite verb that will get thrown around in these sort of like advisory letters is uh urging Anytime you see in a letter or just sort of like any kind of proclamation, we urge you to do this. It is imperative for you to do this. It basically means we do not care what Let's is go. going to happen. Yeah, like you. Uh, Danny. Do, yeah, yeah. David. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it seems like it's time now that we have a, a national conversation around oh. this issue. It's time for us all to come together. And have a national conversation, folks. We Around urge, pollution, folks. Yeah. folks. We're gonna urge a national conversation. <laughs> folks. We're gonna 
urge yeah. a national conversation around folks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ur- urge, urge is one of those verbs in politics that it's just it should be an immediate red flag uh, if you see that. It means that that person is either vaguely threatening, as in what the one that you were kind of implying with the. Like, you need to make these PPE masks, or it is just a baseless, meaningless action verb where they are like, it doesn't matter if you do anything. Yeah. A little bit of both, maybe, right? If we, if we get lucky. Uh, so then looking at a few others, uh, there's a few things about how hours of service rules for truckers. There's some interesting stuff on abortion. Um, basically, um, there have been, uh, has sought to prohibit abortion unless it is to protect the life or the health of the woman. And here's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> He's right in front of the screen. Uh, uh, oh, like, yeah. Uh, live, live comedy, guys. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyways, so they, one of the things is that, that all these states have tried to make abortion a uh, non-essential uh, service to kind of shut down abortion and use that as an example in order to do so. Um, then union elections, the national labor relations board, uh, suspended union elections in the first couple of weeks of coronavirus. And then they backed off that directive. So initially they said they suspended it for two weeks, then they opened it up. However, they have, um, and I can get this from direct confirmation from people outside the Bloomberg article. They have opened it up, but they haven't, they're not fully operational because only some of the local boards are doing hearing are like actually doing hearings. Um, and hearings are necessary for any sort of labor dispute, basically, um, and, resolving, uh-huh. and resolving in any sort of meaningful way that isn't just on the employer's terms. Um, and only some of them are doing hearings uh, over like digital, like Zoom hearings or whatever the hell they're going to use, but they're not doing them in person. So anyways, a lot of the regulatory state is either in a skeletal crew or um, is being exploited for political purposes. The SEC... No one's watching the hen house. No one's watching the hen house. The SEC is essentially shutting down all new rulemaking and is also kind of... and is also mostly stopping all in-person examinations. Um, Everyone has gone remote at the SEC, which is, you know, necessary and healthy. Um, but then they're also granting all sorts of regular, they're being, I mean, what I found amazing about looking at what the SEC is doing is how efficient and responsive they have been. That's not to say that it's bad, but it's just really fucking annoying part that, that they would be so responsive, um, to like the financial sector, but like something like the labor board would just be incredibly slow and inefficient at handling uh, coronavirus and responding to it in an appropriate fashion. Like the SEC made some like temporary rule changes that say like there's certain thing like transactions that you need to do that you need to have like an actual signature um, of the you know like of some firm or some particular officer. Um, and the SEC said, oh yeah, you can just do that digitally, and they just allowed for that fine because uh, mostly because the biggest lobbying one of the biggest lobbying bodies of the uh, financial sector, SIFMA, uh, the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, they wrote a letter to the SEC saying, here's what we need. And the SEC responded saying, done. We got it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
done. We're good. Um, one weird thing that they're doing that they are still moving forward with is the implementation of this rule called regulation best interest. And we talked about this a little bit um, when we did the episode about the Epsteins, the Epstein cases. Yeah. And regulation best interest essentially was the result of many, 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 many years of trying to implement a certain provision of Dodd-Frank. Uh, so after Dodd-Frank happened, they had to conduct a study, and the study concluded that you need that nobody has any idea what a broker is and what a financial advisor is. Uh, yes, yes. We don't know. And so that said that you need to have the same laws of protection apply to brokers and financial advisors. Uh, yeah, I recall this. Yeah, and so they tried to get that passed in the last years of Obama's SEC, failed uh, because Obama couldn't get a fifth SEC commissioner appointed in, mm -hmm. after 2014, in part because the Senate refused to give him one, which would have let him pass regulation best interest. Uh, and so that could, I mean, he could have also done that in earlier years, I, I, I would imagine. Anyways, they, pa they tried to pass it through the Department of Labor uh, because the Department of Labor has partial authority over certain sectors of the financial sector, like retirement plans. It passed, it became a rule, and then it got struck down in, this, in the federal courts because they basically said the Department of Labor is not the appropriate body to implement this rule. So then the Trump administration comes in and says, we're not going to implement a uniform standard for broker-dealers and for financial advisors, we are going to have the same one for financial advisors, which is called a fiduciary, which is a high level, and then we're going to implement something called regulation best interest, um, which, depending on who you ask, is either the exact same thing of what it is, but it's with new fancy language, or it is a heightened standard, but is not the same thing as a, as a fiduciary. What that means is that the SEC is essentially keeping the regulations that are beneficial to industry going while they're granting relief, regulatory relief for things that are harming the industry. This is yeah, no. This is the yeah, these are the like, nicest guys in the world. Just so nice. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of sounds. I mean, we we've talked about these subjects in the past, and I think the the important thing to sort of garner from it is while we're all sort of hyper-focused on, like, when am I going to get my $1,200? And, like, oh, my gosh, are they? is there going to be unemployment for stuff? Just sort of, like, just sort of in the background, in, in, in plain sight, all these just sort of, like, miniature, just sort of, like, eh, we're going to fuck with things just a little bit. Mm -hmm. We're this totally, like, out there, you know, governing body. But don't pay attention. Don't worry about it. It's just going to happen mm -hmm. while you're all freaking out about washing your hands, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, enforcement in the financial sector is a skeleton crew. I mean, they're not even doing in-person examinations. So that means that... Right. The, right, like all the inspectors are on Zoom calls just uh, checking in, and they're not wearing <laughs> uh, pants, Yeah, and their cats are jumping across the screen, and, yeah. <laughs> you know... Yes. Uh, yes. Like, I just imagine that if anybody, like... I called you up on FaceTime and was like, okay, now it's time for me to inspect your restaurant. Or uh, uh, it's so easy to lie 
about where you are if, yeah. if it's, it's somebody on a call. Yeah, yeah. Little do you guys know, I've been on the toilet this entire time. And you guys have <laughs> Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm putting in a flushing <laughs> sound effect right here. Uh, it's it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, right. like, yeah, we're on a Zoom call, but you guys can only see my face in the ceiling, basically. And then, like, for all we know, the SEC is, like, receiving documents, but they're just, like... I mean, it, it, it's absolutely absurd um, that that there would be any sort of enforcement right now. So, like, there could be a whole lot of grift going on right now. I mean, like, folks, if you want to violate any of our federal securities laws, now is the time. <laughs> there, there is a fire sale. Uh, and the sale, the product is theft. Yeah, baby. I'm, it reminds me of 9-11. And uh, there was, like, there were a bunch of people that faked their own deaths. Uh, right after 9-11. Whoa. Uh, what? And oh, really? It, they were like, well, uh, they'll just think that my body disintegrated in this building. And a bunch of people that di- were unhappy in their marriages just walked away from their lives. Whoa. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's real. That is a guy who truly never will forget. And then in, in the outer boroughs, there were a bunch of murders all around the same time on that day because all the police were down by the uh towers <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. No. there was a huge amount of yeah dude apparently i actually i think i have heard of that gabe apparently like in <laughs> washington heights a couple gangs just sort of like let shit hit the fan they're like all right the cops are in the lower manhattan <laughs> going out they of really... business sale on murders <laughs> yeah 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 it was uh it went down apparently yeah so See, uh like, you know in yeah. some it, it, these aren't violent crimes that are happening in the in the absence of um any uh, like all of our hysteria we're turning a blind eye to regulatory systems that and institutions we have in place but uh it's similar it's like now it's a perfect opportunity for grift and graft grift and graft and greed yeah mm-hmm. sunday 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 grift and graft and greed could we call we could, these? Pa- they're like pandemic profiteers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shock doctors. Uh, you know. Yeah, baby. Yeah, spin doctors, if you will. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that that's that's the update on what's going on at the SEC right now. Mostly, I mean, there's this one new commissioner, um, who is supposed to be like the lefty commissioner. She's uh, her name is Allison Heron Lee, and she, there's been comparisons made to elizabeth warren uh she was the former commissioner to so basically the sec has a structure where there are five commissioners and two of them have to be from a non-party of the president of the united states yeah you've said you've mentioned this so before. Yeah. so allison is in the democratic seat and she was basically like um no, no, no. I, I actually, she, she kind of said something that was weird and confused people. She said, I actually want to pause all agency rulemaking um, during coronavirus. She's like, let, let, let's pause these rules. And everyone was like, oh, she's so industry friendly. Like, why is this Democrat being so industry friendly? But then you think about it a little bit more and you realize all of these rule proposals are incredibly friendly to industry. So the SEC is currently very busy actually they've had one of the busiest couple years uh in a long time and they're making all these rules that um overall will be very beneficial to industry 
Um, some of the rural proposals are like stuff we've talked about in the past, like trying to get more retail, you know, Main Street investors to be able to invest in, you know, like private funds, like private equity and stuff like that. Uh, some of them mm-hmm. is, are like loosening restrictions. Uh, some of them are doing all sorts of other weird little stuff like that. Uh, and yeah, she was like, yeah, I want to pause these. And so it was, it was just like a weird moment where everyone was like, wait, Alison Heron Lee? Like she likes us. Why do I love Alison Heron Lee as being like all these like industry people were saying that. Um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, all the, uh, but then the really, uh, all the investor advocates were like, no, 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 no. I see what she's doing. She is, she is deep. She's like deep cover. She's being like deep woke, super woke. <laughs> she's four D chessing. Or, she's, or yeah, she's four D chessing, uh, the securities industry. She's, but she's also just being an obstructionist, right? In a good way. Yeah, I think so. That's what it seemed like to me. Uh, in the hopes that if you pause these rules long enough, uh, you know, who the hell knows how long this coronavirus lasts. And then if you pause it long enough, maybe in November we'll get, you know, a Jill Stein presidency. And Jill Stein will, <laughs> it will implement some rules that are favorable to, you know, that are, that, that are not so favorable to the investment, you know, the... Uh, the financial sector um yeah i don't know man i don't know that's it that's all i have to say about that sector uh do you guys want to move on to something else spanish flu yeah it happened okay. in 1918 don't know why it's called the spanish flu since it originated in kansas hey you fucking hey. loser it should be I called sh- the kansas flu we should <laughs> that's, that, that, that's actually that's actually my mom's name so please don't don't say that. Um, sure, killed we, fifty million people around the world. Estimate. Yeah, so we should we should also happen. clarify too. It was only when I was uh, going through the edits of the previous episode that I I, I realized that uh, we never really explicitly said what we were doing with the play <laughs> with the play study. <laughs> so I I think it's easy to understand once you listen to one episode. But just in case somebody didn't do that, essentially we're kind of trying to look at the effects other plagues have had in history uh, to like economic structures and what they've been doing. So last week we did the bubonic plague of the 13th, 14th century, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, this week we're doing uh, the Spanish flu, which happened uh, just about a hundred years ago, a little bit more. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah. That happened. Uh, 1918, uh, that basically one year and it, it, uh, there were three waves of it that came across the entire globe. And the first wave was pretty bad, but the second wave is the one that uh, had people dropping dead. They'd get sick in the morning and they would die by the evening. Whoa. And they would turn, and they would, uh, turn blue from lack of oxygen. Whoa. Whoa. And, uh, hey. <laughs> and then the third wave was a little bit more mild. And then after mm. that, it just kind of like died out on its own. We never came up with a vaccine for it or anything. Mm. But we still have a uh, plague season every year or flu season. Sorry. Flu nice. season. I like plague season. I like that. That's nice. Uh, sure. Yeah, and now, yeah, no. Do. Yeah. And you get the play, you get the flu and nobody really takes it seriously, but it kills like tons of people every year anyway. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah. The Spanish flu, it, it didn't go away, uh, but what it, it, it sort of like mutated out. Um, so by the 1950s, essentially, it, it wasn't the same thing, you know? Uh, but yeah, you're right. It did. It killed 
uh, half a percent of all people living. Whoa. Uh, back in ni- 1918. And actually, surprisingly enough, of those uh, 50 million deaths, only 500,000 came from the United States. So uh, in the grand scheme of things, we, we probably came away uh, less hurt than like Europe did. I'm sure a fuck ton of deaths came from Europe with the, with the, Spanish, uh, with the Spanish flu. Um, One thing mm-hmm. that I saw was that, first off, the fact that World War I um, was happening or had just ended was a huge deal in making that. Like, the war, the war, World War I was almost a vector for this disease. So, like, oh, yeah. Like, I think that one of the reasons why we don't talk about it so much is it almost just got, gets psychologically blended in with the war itself. And so people don't really think of it as a separate pandemic. Um, when in reality, it had a huge, it, uh, it, it had such a large impact on civilian mortalities. Um, that it, for the United States, estimates of combat related troop mortalities are about one-tenth that of civilian mortalities from the 1918 influenza pandemic. Um, So really, it it did not, from what I saw, what I read, it did not impact uh, soldiers as much as it really decimated uh, civilians. Yeah, so here's a fun fun fact about how it uh, traveled. Um, So the the first cases were in Fort Funston, which was right outside of this small town in Kansas, and the flu uh, probably originated in pigs, mm-hmm. right Our around point. that area. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, so the so the troops at Fort Funston, they were overcrowded in these barracks because all of these forts around the U.S. Like you know, a World War One basically was the first time that we mobilized a national army to go and fight overseas. So uh, it was just massive mobilization of people, and they had to build all of these. Um, these uh, forts along the railroads and the forts uh, were um, not built for the number of troops we were conscripting or drafting. Uh, so you yeah, might have yeah, like yeah. a barracks that, that's supposed to have 500 people, but then they would just cram a hundred soldiers into that barracks. So they're like right on top of each other, sharing beds and whatnot. Holy and so all it would take is like one person with this airborne flu bug in the barracks to cough and get everybody in there sick. You know, it's funny, Gabe. You're making me rethink why people don't like mass graves, and it's because <laughs> it's because there's such bad associations with people being smashed into tight spaces with, <laughs> when they're alive. <laughs> I yeah, think, I think there's a really negative association uh, with that. But uh, but uh, all all of this was inextricably tied to the war effort because. The troops needed to get to Europe so quickly that Wilson and his generals did not heed any advice from medical experts. The medical experts were like, hey, man, we need, like, uh, this flu travels, it's traveling so quick, it's burning through the troops. And it's like, well, but the war is burning through the troops. We need to get them overseas now. Mm. We need to get them in these cattle cars and get them to the docks. So it was the transport. It was the transport of the troops that uh, was the vector for getting the flu out there. And the clusters of the flu would basically uh, blo- uh, spiderweb out from wherever the military trains would stop. 
Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Also, it had to have been, like, a full-time job that paid, like, you know, a, like, middle middle of the ground wage, like the equivalent of making $50,000 a year to just be a doctor to be told you're wrong. Like, not the actual <laughs> doctor, but, like, there's, a, there's like, a job in, like, from, like, 1900 to, like, 1970 to be the guy who's just like, fuck off, you stupid pediatrician. Like, all of... <laughs> Throughout history, we have a we have a rich tapestry of telling doctors to fuck off. And sure, being and, horribly wrong, and mm. they didn't really know how to handle. I mean, they didn't really have the uh, the re this research background and technology to deal with this anyway. I mean, they would just put uh, they just have um, rags that they would put on their faces. Yep. But uh, the reason it's called the Spanish flu is because Spain was neutral in World War One, and so because of that. Uh, their press corps was also neutral and free to report on anything they wanted to. There was no, yeah. no wartime yeah. censorship. Yeah. Uh, and every other country was suffering from influenza to the same degree, but they had a much more positive um, narrative around the, their homelands because they didn't want other They didn't want to show weakness. Yep. Also, you know, if you were if you're in the middle of the war and you're like, oh, by the way, like millions of our civilians are dying of the flu, it would just like encourage, you know, the Germans or the French to push harder against the other side. So apparently, yeah. apparently, uh, King Alfonso the Thirteenth of Spain uh, suffered <laughs> suffered from Spanish flu, uh, which was also one thing that I read was that one of the reasons why it doesn't really get talked about is because there wasn't there weren't too many famous people that got it. Um, and so the fact that he got it perhaps was like, oh, finally, someone. There's like a Boris Johnson or like a Bolsonaro or like a... Or a Tom Hanks. Or a Tom Hanks. The, yeah. I think we should call this the Tom Hanks flu, if you ask me, because he was really the first celebrity to get it, I guess. And they don't... Yeah. There wasn't anyone besides King Alfonso the Thirteenth who got it. And so maybe that was a, another reason why it was called the Spanish flu, because Spain wasn't the only country that was not neutral aka yeah you know if you're neutral then you're siding with the habsburgs uh I yeah i i just think it's i think it's so funny because spain is like the first ones they're like uh they're just like yeah we have the we have this flu it's pretty bad and then immediately america's just sort of like newsflash the spaniards of across the across the atlantic have a new fancy flu that takes a siesta from two <laughs> every day and oh it's just yeah, we immediately jumped on. That's that's what we call bad PR, my friends. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> how many backpackers who wanted to go through uh, over to Barcelona mm -hmm. or Barcelona? Just mm -hmm. uh, how many how many thousands did that stop in the early days? Study abroad was ruined. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Think about think about how many Tulane undergraduates couldn't go to Spain on their study abroad because of the Spanish flu. Oh no. It's so sad. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. Uh so one thing uh that I found was it really what's different about this disease, the Spanish flu, is that the people that died that were most likely to get it were between the ages of 18 and 40. Um, and I think that this might be because it was it followed the war that's what it, it's strange because obviously now for covid 18 to 40 year old folks are probably the safest uh, from coronavirus if you know i mean um, the, you know older people immunodeficient people 
are much more likely to get it. So there are some differences. So when we start thinking about the economic impact of Spanish flu versus coronavirus, and if we want to make comparisons, you have to recognize that the Spanish flu is hitting the most, you know, kind of able-bodied, economically productive seg- segment of the population. Blast, it's, it's blasting out at, like, a, the population pyramid. Have you ever heard of a population pyramid? No. It's when, it's like, if you if you just picture in your head, like, a you know, a triangle or a yeah. pyramid, the whole theory is, is that, you know, the top is supposed to be, like, 80, 90-year-olds or whatever. The mm-hmm. bottom is gonna is supposed to be, like, y- you know, z- 0 to 10 or whatever. But that chunk in the middle, that chunk in the middle is the people who are able to work. I see. And if the chunk on the top gets too top-heavy, gets too big, oh. then you just have, like, an incredibly precarious situation where the people in the middle have to carry the brunt of mm-hmm. everything. And, like, modern societies that have had to deal with that are, like, Japan. Like yeah. the population for population pyramid for Japan is like flipped upside down because there's so many old people, um, and that's probably basically what was happening when Spanish flu came around. Is you just had a significantly smaller amount of actually working people available, you know, just holding everything. It's if it's a wartime disease, which Gabe is saying that it came from and followed American soldiers. Right. Well, then, it would have happened no matter what, because okay, it came yeah. from a farm. I see. I but, see. But the but the troops were a great delivery uh, mechanism. I see. Yes. Yes. Then you can't even. Not only can you are are the most productive segments of the population dying from war and you know being leaving their economic communities because of the war, and you have that, but then they're dying from the war and they're dying from the disease so it's i think what makes it so hard to study and especially study the social and economic impacts of the spanish flu is the fact that it is so inter it is so necessarily intertwined with world war one yeah it's really muddled up in there and what i was sort of uh, there was a couple of things that i was able to sort of discern from my research uh, once again i made the unfortunate decision to pick what I believe was the the biggest scholarly article uh, out of all the articles. <laughs> I, I, I chose one of the Forbes article, which then linked to a paper that was 40 pages long with so many charts and so many, uh, so many graphs there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, there was, it, it, you're, I mean, you're right. Like World War One really, it, it's hard to really really be able to um like track it i mean we have so much more recording and the ability to like track uh, you know actually know what happened because this is recent history Absolutely. but it's just it's it's all i don't know it's just it was a clusterfuck you know uh you also had a lot of people that were born during that time that generation of children that were born yeah. in uh 1918 that long term for the rest of their lives had a lower academic performance and a lower ability to uh, hold down jobs and generate wealth. I saw that paper as well. So oh. something about it just had like uh, long-term cognitive effects on people having survived that as like little kids or uh, in in utero. Yeah, if you were in utero and your mother had the flu, 
she it was a wrap it was a wrap it would it would really it would affect your cognitive or physical uh form and it would make it could make you susceptible to lower cognition or lower you know make, make you disabled in some way which would you know kind of like alter the you know your own capacity to contribute to the economy i guess i mean if you're going to look at it like in a weird way also you have a disability like it, what was weird about that article uh which was just like oh yeah and that hurt the economy it's like well hold on hold on it made someone disabled like let's focus on let's like acknowledge that yeah, yeah. first right when there's fewer people there's fewer laborers labor has more bargaining power and therefore real wages go up right and he kind of made that argument that in the whole it could have been good for wages but the cost of that is just hundreds of thousands of people dying it was a challenging time to like labor wasn't going to really benefit from this though long term because it's unsustainable to have a culling of people every uh <laughs> uh, every so often yeah. and then also uh, the it was colleagues. like a wartime economy and labor wasn't yeah. probably wasn't doing so well because they were um mandated to work for the national effort that's right yeah actually so that's okay so that's something that i that i think is a bit of a it, it, it's you're right gabe because in one of the articles I read, I, one of the other articles I, I chose because it was from Mother Jones, um, and it's not because I really like that publication, um, but I, I more just sort of wanted to see what their sort of like spicy take on this was, uh, which I was absolutely not disappointed by. The guy who wrote it, this guy named Kevin Drum. Uh, oh, that guy. Like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. Okay. Wait, you know who Kevin Drum is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me give you my let me give you my takes on him. So, like, uh, the first thing I noticed was that his title was political blogger, which is mm. maybe the most embarrassing title that you can possibly mm. like have. You know, like it's it's more dignified to be like the piss pig slot bucket at a BDSM house than like a political blogger. Blogger, like it's it's just a really terrible title. Um, <laughs> and like I I wanted to I before I even sorry read is, his is that article, a, is that a common idiom? Did you just come up with that off the top of your head? That sounds like yeah it's, yeah yeah. It's more it's more dignified than being a piss piss pig at a BDSM whole house like whole house yeah I'm like uh who's the guy who is shit talking Bernie a lot uh the the southern guy from Louisiana uh uh what's his your name? boy James, uh, James Carville. James Carville. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm like a pig, pig slot bugger to be in there somehow. You know, like it's yeah. <laughs> Sorry, continue just, with what you're going about your academic article. Yeah. <laughs> no, but like this, uh, before I even read the article, uh, this guy Kevin, yeah, I I wanted to just look at all the articles he's written. Period. And first off, he had like thirty in like the past like twelve days, and like nice. one of them was just. One of them was just a picture of a cat called Saturday Kitten Blogging, and the only, uh, like thing that it said was because why not? And then like another one was mm. weird. It was uh, is it time for more lead abatement? The answer may shock you, which I thought was real fun. I didn't know we were doing, like, oh my God. that type of click, that type of clickbait in 2020. The point, the point being is his whole like. Uh, his whole like thesis in his article was just sort of like, well, I don't know if the Spanish flu actually affected things too much because in industrial like manufacturing continued to 
go up and keep doing things. And the the thing that I got from that article, or at least my the point of contentions that I wanted to make was like, well, of course, industrial production like continued because there was like no labor practices of the time. Like, yeah, like it was like it, this was like right as like the socialist movement is just starting and like actually being a force in the United States. Yeah. So like, I mean, the fucking also the, Eugene V. Debs is in jail at this time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like yeah. the jungle had just been written, you know, talking about how Chicago was just a meat grinder, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're gonna force people to continue manufacturing. He he said uh in when this article he said, quote, uh from a cold eyed per economic perspective, the coronavirus pandemic is unlikely to be as severe as the Spanish flu because the Spanish flu had a surprising modest effect on the economy nineteen nineteen and beyond, which is just dumb because it's 1919 and like 12 years after that you have the great depression yeah (laughs) what what the fuck are you talking about and then as as far as like comparing it to corona goes i mean you know 1919 the beginning of the 20th century that's like right as capitalism is in it's like flourishing let's make a factory who gives a fuck about the uh, the uh, environment? Let's like produce and make and do yeah. whatever we want, you know. Like that's in full swing. Like Rockefeller is alive. Yeah, you know Carnegie is alive. You know all these things are happening. But you know to say that the coronavirus won't have a deep and long at uh you know economic impact, I mean, it's just not taking into account what stage of capitalism we are in right now that's you know, right we're we're just we're 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 in a completely different area where like not only do we just produce far less than we do but like we're also just the way the the, the types of jobs that people have are just they're just far different you know yeah we're not like uh, it, it's, it's almost cliche and it sounds like unfortunately it sounds very trumpian to say this but like we don't make things anymore like it, it, and yeah. that's true. We measure econ- we, our economy has been financialized, and we have a lot more people who are like marketing consultants than we do people who are like people who you know s- like seamstresses or like steel workers or farmers. Like there is the measure of economic growth is contingent on consumption, service, and management, not on actual like production and increase in like overall social value Um, can i tell you what david my uh i feel like my management skills have just shot through the roof with all these zoom calls i've been on (laughs) (laughs) i've gained so many experience points (laughs) the pandemic is really a like pushed up my professional development iq points dude you're adding that you're adding that to your linkedin tab (laughs) <laughs> it's yeah. like what did you get out of the pandemic well i've learned how to make uh background screens when i conference call with people <laughs> yeah and honestly who needs like a lathe or a bandsaw or a fucking you know uh, uh a coat that wasn't made in five countries when you can have like the senior frogs logo in the back of your zoom call you know that's 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 it's called brand it's called brand exposure yes (laughs) um 
Yeah, actually, I, I, if uh, that kind of dovetails a little bit into the other far more academic journal that I attempted to read, uh, it basically had the theory that the social distancing aspect of uh, the coronavirus is a positive thing. And even though there's sort of this large pushback from, you know, the Trump administration and a couple others that, you know, like, we need to reopen the economy, it is uh, far better in the short term to just wait out the worst effects of, uh, you know, infection and what have you and keep the economy yeah. closed. Yeah. They actually talked about that in that article about how, like, one of the worst places that were hit was uh, Pennsylvania, oddly enough. I s- uh, yeah. Pennsylvania had a huge industrial um, presence in the early 20th century in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia specifically. Yeah. And they said it, Spanish flu was absolutely the worst there because they didn't uh, distance quickly enough. And mm-hmm. then my assumption and my educated guess is that because there was so much uh, manufacturing that was continuing to happen, mm-hmm. they were like, well, yeah, just go back to your job where you make gigantic cast iron parts and, you know, you have to do this. And it ended up biting them in the ass because of yeah. that. Well, well, we Western. see that it, it, well, exactly uh, what you're talking about, Danny, has to do with the uh, living conditions of people who worked in these factories, too, because they would they they everyone people lived in slums in Philadelphia at the time. And you would have uh, workers and uh, laborers, day laborers who would spend basically they would um, rent the a room in a house. They would rent the bed during maybe during the day. One guy would rent it. And then he would get out of that bed to go to work at night. And then the guy coming back from his day shift would get right into that same bed. Oh, <laughs> and Ooh, man. They, br- they brought this up now. This is what the conditions are with uh, farming in the U.S. I mean, we could be looking at a total collapse of the agricultural sector. But uh, there is social distancing when you're out in the fields uh, picking the fruits and picking the, um, the uh, any like plants. But at night. All of the laborers yeah. go back to these little, uh, the, these like shared living spaces where they're right on top of one another. And the most expensive uh, uh, utility out there in the fields is water. So they uh, are rationing their water when they're at home, which means nobody's washing their hands. Oh, no. <laughs> and, God damn. Uh, and then, yeah, so they're all going to get coronavirus at night. And then they're going to be socially distanced during the day when they pick strawberries. And then if you're like, if you're, if, if, if you're a college student, then you're also like on leave right now. You can't go back home because there's not enough space. So you'll be crashing somewhere and you have a gig job. Um, I read this, I read an, an article in the Times today that described some 19 year olds who basically aren't in college because school's canceled. And so they are working gig jobs. And because they're working gig jobs, they're like they can't afford a living situation that would grant them the opportunity to social distance. So again, it's it is it sounds almost exactly like 1918, 10 people in one house or something like that, where they just can't afford to socially distance. I mean, this is happening here and very close to all of us. Um, yeah. One thing that I wanted to say, um, which was. In West Philadelphia, flew from Spain. <laughs> that, that was uh, it. Yeah, uh, it, I, I think, I think the the biggest thing to sort of like, yeah, um, derive from 
just sort of, you know, the Spanish flu as compared to the coronavirus um, is, is two things. One, just the term, like, social distancing. Uh, obviously, they weren't saying that back then, but the idea that you shouldn't be in crowds was understood. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing too, though, is, and I think this is important, as, at least from an economic standpoint, is that all, you know, all plagues are new, exciting, unique experiences and it's really it's hard to make comparisons between mm -hmm. the two i mean a, a big deal with the spanish flu was just transportation because by and large the east coast was hit far worse than the west coast mm -hmm. you know by the time the spanish flu effectively made it over to like los angeles san francisco portland seattle uh you know people understood that it was a, like a, a real deal and that they had to take measures that would affect uh, how quickly it spread. And I, on all the graphs that I looked at basically said like, yeah, it was far less prevalent because of these things. Um, and obviously we live in a different era now. Like um, information can travel faster. So, you know, people can know about that stuff sooner, which is cool. But at the same time, travel is also like instantaneous you know you can fly across like plane plane totally. travel didn't exist as like as a, a means of we, transportation you know so we had uh danny some some things you brought up that are interesting are one like that san francisco every city um dealt with this differently and so philadelphia was hit very very hard but san francisco figured out pretty quickly that there was a pandemic that they had on their hands and they locked the whole city down mm -hmm. and they uh mm -hmm. they did a really good job making people wear face masks in public and like setting up curfews and it seemed totalitarian but they were able to um stop one of the waves of the flu whereas uh wow it <laughs> the government the uh the the federal government was very interested specifically in getting troops to the coasts so they were like again they were kind of uh against the best interests of our local population because they needed to supply the war effort with fresh troops whereas today yeah. we we failed because we have with this pandemic specifically because we have such a terribly inefficient federal government yeah we had no unified response and we left mm -hmm. it in the hands of governors some of whom have done better jobs than others, but there's no there's no one in charge of the plane right now. Yeah, there there's I mean infrastructure is was so different back then. I just it's funny when when you were saying that, Gabe. I was like, wait a minute, when was the Golden Gate Bridge made? Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't even built until fucking 1933. Uh, and the Bay Bridge, <laughs> the Bay Bridge out of SF going to Oakland, also did not start going till 1933. So you have like San Francisco, which is literally an isolated peninsula. Yeah. Just sort oh, of yeah. like, you don't have thousands of thousands of cars going into it. And uh, they took advantage of that and said like, yeah, we can, I, we can literally isolate us, uh, each, each other because we literally live in a bay. You can't, get, <laughs> you can't get in here unless you drive all the way around the bottom, uh, like below into Marin County first. So, yeah, I mean, point being, it's it's a vast, it's a vastly different, um, 
thing. And I mean, even though it's fun to make comparisons about the Spanish flu, I mean, yeah, I think the uh, there's only so much you can garner from it. Um, I mean, the one thing you really can garner from it is that death is bad for the economy. Like, <laughs> yeah, de death is bad for the economy. Like, you are right about that, that. Like, you can't, like, everyone's like, oh, like, World War II got us out of the Depression, or, like, the flu raised wages for workers, or all these things. But it's like, yeah, but imagine if all the people who didn't die, imagine all the people who died didn't die. Those people, <laughs> think, yeah. think about how much tax revenue you could get from all those people. <laughs> like, like, there's always a fun way that you can, like, work your way around including a uh, life's inherent economic worth. And so every single time people die, that is an economic loss. Um, yeah. I mean, well, so I'd say though that, uh, uh, yeah, that, but the, on a political side, a positive thing that comes from pandemics is that it does reveal the tenuous nature of uh, the current system. And it yes. also heightens, yeah. It heightens um, the distinctions between the haves and the have-nots, mm -hmm. and it shows you exactly what the flaws are with our medical uh, healthcare system and with our uh, distribution system when it comes to supplies and our readiness. So, and I, oh, go ahead. Uh, the, yeah, how the bullshit that's coming out of our president's mouth and some of our governors. So. That I think is pot. It might not help the economy to hear those things, but there there can be positive political gains to be made out of a pandemic. So I so yeah, the, the one that I read um, was from the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. Did a study on the economic effects of the nineteen eighteen pandemic, and which is just a weird organization to be conducting this study. I don't know why they did, but they did it in two thousand seven. So this is two years um, after Katrina, and this is the final paragraph uh, of what they said. Basically, they're they're trying to apply the lessons of 1918 to today. Uh, and I quote: "Of course, mitigating a pandemic will require cooperation and planning by all levels of government and the private sector. Unfortunately, a 2005 report suggests that the United States is not prepared for an influence of pandemic, although federal." <laughs> Although federal, state, and local governments in the United States have started to focus on preparedness in recent years, it is fair to say that progress has been slow, especially at local levels of governments. Uh, different levels of governments have been relatively ineffective in coordinating a response to disasters in the past, whereas private charities and volunteer organizations like the American Red Cross often perform admirably and are often the first responders. Assuming that citizens want government to mitigate an influenza outbreak, there should be concern about government's readiness and ability to protect citizens from a pandemic. Perhaps public education on flu mitigation, a greater reliance on charitable and volunteer organizations, and a dose of personal responsibility may be the best ways to protect Americans in the event of a future, a future influenza pandemic. What the fuck is this goddamn Harry Truman ass, Missouri ass, fucking what's your barbecue sauce supposed to taste like? Fucking. Yeah, shut the front door, you pieces of shit. Goddamn Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation motherfuckers. <laughs> 
pretty. What, you guys don't think that uh, charity and personal responsibility can solve all problems? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I think Gabe. Honestly, this pandemic it's your fault, and I'm I'm ready for you to take take responsibility for it. All right. <laughs> yeah. It's very personal. It's 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 personal to this podcast. It, yeah. It's, personal it's a person. It's a personally held belief. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I mean, it is it is insane that this guy is basically spends all this time talking about how horrible the government was at responding to the Spanish flu federally and then how horrible it was in responding to Katrina, which happened two years earlier. And then it cites a paper that says how horribly the federal government is prepared for a future pandemic. And then he says, the only thing that we have to protect that we have is each other. That's all we have. And <laughs> we just, there's, baby. there is no way that the government will ever be good enough. <laughs> Fucking loser. Uh, well, don't listen to those fucking cucks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's good though. I think we got a. I think we got a good handle on that, and we're gonna talk about Ebola. We're gonna try to. <laughs> we're gonna try to talk about Ebola next week or in the near future. That one's very recent, mm-hmm. but you know, we'll we'll still be here. I'll still be. On, I'll still be on the streets, uh, delivering food and not coughing into people's mouths. Uh, yeah, that's about it. I, I, yeah, I have. I have. I have horrible uh, back pain, actually, and I hope that it's better. Yeah, you're week. sitting all the time. I'm sure it's because you're sitting all the time. Uh, I'm 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 sitting on a couch, and I'm I'm trying to do work on a couch, and so I got I've had these horrible back spasms from yeah my ergonomic chair. I miss my I miss my office chair. It's yeah. You got to get a massage cane <laughs> and a foam roller. A massage get, cane. Get, yeah, yeah. There's these little trigger point canes. They look like question marks. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're like that, you know. And they they like really they really get you, you know. It sounds like they dig in. That, that yeah, sounds yeah. like something like a creepy Willy Wonka would use. I don't know. Oh, that's why I've got one. <laughs> <laughs> like Willy Wonka the rapist. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. Uh, Gross. Well. Yeah, but that's that's it. Um, you know, my name's uh, Danny Feltz. Gabe Pacheco. David Bradley Eisenberg, Ponzi Scream. God bless you all. Good night. All Get right. out of here. Have a great night. <laughs> <laughs>